I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. It's January 25th, 2024. Already January 26th here in Israel. I'm coming to you live from Ra'anana. My first time back in Israel since I left in early October. My first time back since everything broke out here and have some really interesting perspectives to share with you now that I am back in Israel. And tonight's episode is called Delta. Delta is the Greek letter that in mathematics means change. And I'm going to share with you three stories that have to do with change tonight. And also, of course, bring you a recap on the news and some of your questions, which you sent in ahead of time, which, of course, I'm always eager to hear and gives me time to prepare when you do that ahead of time. So thank you for doing that. So if we're talking about change, the first story I want to share with you is probably one you already heard about. It's the incident in which 21 of our IDF soldiers were killed in Gaza this past week. And this is 21 soldiers in one incident, which is the highest death toll we've had in one single incident in one single day so far since this war began. So the first thing I want to explain is how exactly this happened. This was actually very close to the Israeli border in Gaza, from what I heard, about 600 meters from the border. This is where that happened. And what these soldiers were doing is they were laying explosives into a building to blow up this building as part of a larger effort to do something which, in my opinion, Israel should have done a long time ago, but which had not, is to set up a one-kilometer buffer zone between the Israeli side of the border and the Gaza side of the border. Now, you might ask, what was there until now? Wouldn't it make sense that we'd have a buffer zone? Well, technically, we did have a buffer zone. We had about a 300-meter buffer zone. So this new kilometer long one would be over three times as long. We had a 300 meter kilometer zone. However, Gazans were allowed to farm in this buffer zone. And it also wasn't very well enforced. There were numerous reports of Gazans coming up to the fence, uh, approaching the fence where Israel exists, even before all the uh, lead up to October 7th. And it just, nothing was ever done about it. And in terms of why, I think it was the Israeli reliance on our superior technology, our superior military, plus that failure of imagination I spoke about before that Hamas would actually do something. So even though we had a 300 meter buffer zone, it was as if we really didn't have anything at all. But now Israel has decided to create a one kilometer buffer zone between our fence and their fence, which means what some politicians and uh, army officers are saying, that this would be a an open fire zone, meaning the instant you step inside, you are a legitimate target and we would shoot you down. And frankly, this is what Israel needs, and it's needed for a long time. It's one of those things that in retrospect, we look back and we wonder how did Israel never have a buffer zone like this before, but uh, alas, this is what these soldiers were doing. So they were 600 meters from the border, attempting to blow up a building with dynamite, wiring it so that it, wiring it so that it would be removed as we clear out this buffer zone. And as they were wiring the building with explosives, there was a tank nearby that was pointed at another building. And 
Hamas militants fired an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, at the tank, injuring two of the soldiers, shaking the tank, and the tank fired. And when the tank fired, it set off a chain of events that exploded all of these, the dynamite and all the explosives these soldiers had set to blow up the building. It exploded it early. So essentially, this building collapsed while all of these soldiers were still inside it. And from what the reports say, it was as if uh, it was a the most disastrous earthquake you had ever seen with bodies trapped inside, uh, soldiers killed both by the impact and from the building falling upon them. And so it really was uh, one of those disasters and one of those memorable moments that we, I think, are going to look back upon as a possible moment of change. Uh, it reminds me very much of something that happened in February 1997 called Ason Hamasokim, the helicopter disaster. And I do believe I've spoken about that before, but I'll briefly talk about it again because it was such a pivotal event in Israel's history. Israel entered Lebanon in June of 1982 with the intention of driving out the PLO, and they were largely successful within a number of weeks. However, they got entangled with Hezbollah and the South Lebanese army and Lebanese politics and ended up staying in Lebanon for 18 years until the year 2000 in a war of attrition. And I was part of that operation in 1998 uh, with my tank unit. And in February of 1997, there were two helicopters that took off from Northern Israel, flying soldiers into Lebanon. And these two helicopters collided in midair over Israel. And all, I believe it was 73 soldiers on board were killed in one afternoon. And this triggered a complete change in the Israeli attitude toward our being in Lebanon. For a long time, there have been many questions. Why are we in Lebanon at all? Who are we actually fighting? What are our goals? But when 73 soldiers were killed in one afternoon, and not by enemy fire, but by our own, it was later revealed, mistakes that the pilots on these two helicopters shut off their lights to avoid being seen by Hezbollah, but this was actually against the rules. They also didn't communicate the way they were supposed to. And it was really error on our side that led to the deaths of these 73 soldiers. It really made Israelis question why we were in Lebanon at all. It led to a movement called the Four Mothers. These were four mothers of combat soldiers who had been serving in Lebanon at the time. And we also recognize the name Four Mothers from the Four, uh, the four Mothers of Matriarchs of the Jewish people, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, um, Leah, and Rachel. And so they named themselves after that group. And these four mothers started a grassroots movement and really led to the pullout from Lebanon three years later in the year 2000. This helicopter accident was that moment when Israelis really began to decide that perhaps we shouldn't be in Lebanon after all. And in the same way, I think we might look back on this incident with 21 soldiers killed in Gaza as one of those moments where the Israeli public truly begins to question what the aims of this war are and how likely it is that we will actually achieve them. And of course, this happens in the wake of other events as well that I'll explain in a moment. But to have 21 deaths in one day is a blow to the Israeli psychology. And to explain what that means, I want to tell you 
what happens when Israelis find out about an event like this? How do they actually learn about it? What do they do as they learn about it? Well, when we look at an event like this, we look very closely, first and foremost, at the names. And we do this instinctively. We don't intentionally do it. But what we do is we look at the names and we look at the town from which they are from. They always list the name of the soldier and where he, usually it's a he, comes from and his age. And so the first thing we do is we look to see if we know any of these names and if there is anyone from our own hometown. I do this without thinking about it, but I scan the names, I look at each one, and I pay attention to see if anyone is near where I live, from Ra'anana itself, or possibly from Kfar Saba, which is right next door, or Herzliya, which is another town that borders Ra'anana. So we immediately look to see if we know anyone and how personally connected we are to any of the fallen. Then we look at the ages and we sort of put a picture together in our head of who this person was. These were all reservists, some of them in their 20s, but some in their 30s. And so we note that when they're older, it's most likely that they have wives, children, families that they're leaving behind. So we we make it very personal and create a narrative about these soldiers, even though we know nothing about them. But that's that's how Israelis react to a tragedy like this. We pay attention to the name, we pay attention to the, where they are from to see if we're in any way connected, and to their ages to try to put together a little bit of a biography for them before we actually get the, the full stories of who these soldiers are. And again, 21 in, in one day, now in, which brought the death toll to over 200 in this conflict, uh, was a huge psychological blow, and I think it could be one of the turning points. Of course, it's in the context of other events happening. So let's go to our second story about change, and that has to do with the hostages. I'll tell you, being back in Israel, I noticed that there is a change in attitude toward the hostages, and I can't exactly put my finger on it, but it seems to me the best way to sum it up is that for the first hundred days, we were sort of willing to accept that the hostages were being held in Gaza, but it was a necessary price in order to defeat Hamas. And we wanted the hostages back, of course, but we also knew that there was no way to defeat Hamas fully if we put our efforts into rescuing the hostages. So we sort of saw these hostages as the tax, as the price we had to pay for defeating Hamas, knowing that enough military pressure would eventually lead to their release. But since that hundredth day, I think the attitude has begun to change. It does seem like more and more people are now questioning the validity of an all-out war against Hamas without the return of the hostages this far in. Reaching 100 days, I think it's really hitting us just how long our fellow Israelis have been held and are still being held. And we're also learning more about what they have gone through. There was testimony in this week from a former woman hostage being held who used the term sex dolls and said that Hamas is treating hostages, both women and men, as their personal sex dolls. And she said that as I'm testifying to you, an Israeli is being raped in Gaza, which is very visceral and hard-hitting testimony. And of course, 
when this was public, it, it really, it's biting. And it makes us realize exactly what our fellow Israelis are going through. On that note, I do think there was a bit of delusion among a lot of Israelis during the early days of the hostages being held, myself included. I think we, and I might have even mentioned this in the broadcast, that I wanted to believe, that many of us wanted to believe that Hamas actually might be taking care of these hostages because they knew they were bargaining chips. They had to care for them. They had to feed them well, shelter them, because any prisoner release on the Palestinian side would hinge on our hostages coming out alive and healthy. We also remember from Gilad Shalit, you know, there were stories, Gilad Shalit was kidnapped in 2006, was held in Gaza five years later, and it's sort of known in Israeli society that throughout his release, Gilad Shalit actually, I wouldn't say he became close with his captors, but he developed a friendly-ish relationship with them. They brought him cake on his birthday, they watched the World Cup together, you know, over his five-year capt captivity. And I think a lot of Israelis wanted to believe that the same type of relationship might be happening with our hostages there. But we are, we are waking up out of our delusion. I've mentioned before failure of imagination, but the flip side of failure of imagination is the power of imagination. And I think we were led by our own imagination of how good it actually, it might not be as bad as we all believe or as bad as it could be. We wanted to think that our fellow Israelis were being taken care of, but we're learning more and more that not only what I just mentioned, but we also discovered holding cells in tunnels underground where uh, our hostages have been kept. We've found evidence of them being kept there, literally locked behind bars with nothing but uh, a mattress and a toilet. We don't know if they were alone or if there were many in these cells. They found drawings from uh, Israeli children there left behind. So we know that they were actually held there and they've since been taken away and probably brought to other tunnels underneath Gaza. But the more we learn, there's starting to be a feeling in Israel that we may have abandoned our hostages by allowing it to go on this long. And so there's more of an attitude I sense here that Israelis are not as pedal to the metal, full forward with defeating Hamas as we were before. There's more and more talk of some sort of diplomatic agreement to bring the hostages home. Um, and we're actually seeing this backed up both with military news out of the military and statistically in polls. And I'll go to the military portion first. Uh, there were four senior officers in the IDF who gave anonymous interviews saying that at this point, it's clear that the, the goal to defeat Hamas and rescue hostages, that is no longer compatible to achieve both of those goals. It has to do with a few things. Number one, that the tunnel network underneath Gaza is far more complex, larger and sophisticated than we actually imagined, making a complete defeat of Hamas pretty much untenable in these the opinion of these senior officers. They've noted that the government still has no plan for the day after. Now, there's been a lot of talk in Israel about how necessary it is to have a plan for the day after, but so far the government still doesn't have, have one. As I've mentioned before, Netanyahu has repeatedly canceled meetings and discussions about day after plans. And without 
some sort of day after plan, it's more difficult for the army to fight. Because what these officers said is that the army literally feels handcuffed. They don't know what sort of short-term tactics to implement and what to do with their captured territory if they don't know what the long-term plan is. If there's territory that we've captured that we believe will eventually lead to civilian populations living there, once again, it means we can't blow these areas up, we need to preserve them. Or if the government is going to have a seat there, we need to preserve them. If we are sure that populations will not be there, we need to destroy them. And without clear guidance from the government of what the day after plan is, the army is handcuffed. And we're seeing that right now. We also had the chief of staff, Halevi, come out and say that without a day after plan, all of the gains that the IDF has made so far are in danger of being wiped out completely. So this lack of a day after plan is another reason why commanders believe that the twin goals of defeating Hamas and rescuing the hostages are really no longer compatible. And we have a member of the war cabinet, Gadi Eisenkot, who actually doubled down on that. And he said, it is time for elections. We need to have new elections to at least get the public involved and offer them the chance at new leadership. And Eisenkot, remember, he's a former chief of staff, probably the most respected living former chief of staff in Israel. He joined the war cabinet to help guide the war. He lost his own son in Gaza just about a month ago, and he lost his nephew a couple days after that. So this war has touched him personally. And we're seeing a rift in the war cabinet. Right now, both Benny Gans and Eisenkot, who I just mentioned, have said that it might be time to pursue a diplomatic solution to return the hostages. And on the other side, you have Netanyahu and Gallant, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, saying that war and pressure on Hamas militarily is the only way to free the hostages. So we're seeing this sort of rift develop. And in the context of this, we have to keep in mind that, of course, Netanyahu has a motivation to keep the war going as long as possible. The minute the war ends, there will definitely be a reckoning, investigation, and elections, possibly. And all the polls show that he is finished. So Netanyahu has a motivation to keep the war going. And that's another reason that Eisenkot wants and others believe that there should be elections now because we need to have a clean slate and make sure the war is being fought for the night for the right reasons and that soldiers aren't being used as pawns and that there are no personal motivations that are impacting how the war is fought. But this kind of news coming from four senior officers that the goals of defeating Hamas and freeing the hostages are not compatible is another reason why the Israeli public is beginning to question the future of this war and just what we should be doing to release the hostages. Now, I mentioned uh, statistically as well, uh, and yes, there are a few polls that came out uh, showing what Israelis feel. Uh, you know, there the U.S. put out a plan recently that said that um, we, you know, in this plan, all hostages would be freed. Uh, Saudi Arabia would have normalization ties with Israel, and there would be a clear pathway to a Palestinian state. That would be that was a deal that was on the table. Hostages released, ceasefire, end of the war, uh, relations with Saudi Arabia and a Palestinian state, serious talks for a Palestinian state. And it turns out that more than 50% of Israelis 
actually are in favor of a plan like this, uh, which is kind of astounding. But to me, the most astounding part is that not just that 50, more than 50% of Israelis are in favor of this kind of plan. Well, as you might expect, 70% of left-wing Israelis favor this kind of plan, but 40%, 40% of right-wing Israelis agree with a plan that would see a ceasefire, freeing all hostages, ties with Saudi Arabia, and a Palestinian state. Talks for a serious and demilitarized Palestinian state. No one expected that 40% of right-wingers would believe this. And this really goes against everything Netanyahu has been saying, because Netanyahu has been firmed that there will never, ever be a Palestinian state. And he's trying to, as we say in Hebrew, uh, dance in both weddings by telling the public on the one hand that there's no chance of a Palestinian state, and then backing off those comments and saying to Biden that he's not totally against the idea, he could see some sort of possibility. And more and more, the Israeli public simply doesn't know what to trust when Netanyahu speaks. But I think what's very telling here is that more and more Israelis actually would be in favor of some sort of diplomatic solution, not necessarily a military one to bring home the hostages. Uh, so that's, um, you know, it's also becoming clear there's no rescue operation because, you know, Eisenkot, who I just mentioned, this former chief of staff, said that there will be no raid on Entebbe style rescue to get the hostages out. It's simply too complicated with all the tunnels, with the number of hostages we have there, over 130, not knowing their exact locations. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, the fact that they're embedded among the Hamas leadership as well, you know, Sinwar, for a long time, our goal was to capture Sinwar, who's the mastermind of October 7th. And he is uh, apparently we know exactly where he is, but he has surrounded himself with hostages to protect himself. So this is all uh, making clear that simply rescuing the hostages in some sort of, uh, you know, classic Israeli style operation is not possible as well. So with regard to the hostages, we're seeing another change in the Israeli public. And, you know, this is taking we're seeing it in in action as well. We've had protesters blocking the aid trucks going into Gaza in the south of Israel, saying that there should be no aid going in as long as we still have hostages there. Uh, we also had a blockage of the major highway in Israel this week when a women's group blocked the highway marching for the release of hostages. This came on the heels of the revelations of how uh, the women prisoners and men as well have been sexually abused and continue to be uh, in Gaza. So it's disrupting public life here. And more and more, we're seeing calls for some sort of diplomatic solution. So that's the second area of change that uh, I wanted to talk about. And the third is just my personal one. You know, after three months uh, being in three more or three and a half months being in the United States, uh, I flew back to Israel yesterday, and I wanted to share with you some of what that has been like. I'll start at the airport. You know, when you land in Ben Gurion Airport, the first thing you notice is just how empty it is, and I think even desolate might even be an appropriate term. I'm sure there are some of you in the audience right now who've been to Israel on missions or personal trips since October 7th. And I'm sure you would agree with me, and uh, I'm sure it's actually busier now than it was when you were here uh, a month ago or even two weeks ago, but it is completely empty. Usually when you exit the airport, you look down into the waiting area where everyone is waiting for their flights, and it's a buzz with excitement and children running around and families uh, 
drinking their coffees. Uh, for me, whenever I would go overseas with my family from Israel, one of the most memorable parts of the trip is being in that waiting area because it means your bags are packed, you're ready to go, and yet you still have the whole trip in front of you. And there's this buzz of excitement. And if you remember the airport, there's a big fountain in the middle in the new Ben Gurion airport waiting area, and it's shooting up water with the, that shoots and designs, and it's very festive. Well, the fountain is turned off. You can see the inner workings of the fountain below, all the pipes and the nitty gritty of the, the rock and how it's built. Uh, the cafes are closed for the most part. Um, and it's, it's empty as you walk out. And then what you notice is a display of dog tags. There's a huge artistic display. I would say probably close to a, it looks a few hundred, maybe even a thousand dog tags of various sizes. Some of them are the size of normal dog tags, but some I'd say are 10 times as large and they hang down from the ceiling on metal chains and with a sign above that that says bring them home. So you see that reminder immediately that this is a country in mourning for those hostages who are in Gaza now. And then as you walk down the ramp toward customs and passport control, they have pictures of all of the hostages who are still in Gaza. And a lot of these faces we recognize, they have uh, almost celebrity status by this point because we've seen them in in photos and in short video clips, and, and we know them by name. Um, but still walking past those photos, it's, it's shocking uh, to see how young some of them are, the children, but also those in their late teens and 20s. I mean, just how young they are and being held in Gaza. And then you also see the older people in their 70s, their 80s, and, and you just ask yourself, what, what kind of world are we living in where 70s and 80-year-olds are, are taken hostage, and it's over 100 days, and, and they are still there. And you see this hostage awareness uh, everywhere else. You see billboards around the country that says, bring them home, and um, it, you and, and signs. And if, if, if you drive through a town and there's a hostage from that town, as you enter the town, you might see a poster with that person's photo and name. So there are constant reminders that the, the hostages are being held. But at the same time, life in so many ways feels absolutely normal. So I've always said that Israel is a land of contradictions, and that is that is one of them, is if you walk around my town of Ra'anana, you really wouldn't know. You wouldn't know from the vibe of the people, the conversations you overhear, the energy of the people really feels no different. If I didn't know that there were a war going on and hostages being held, there's nothing in the the manner of behavior or the way people speak to to tip it off it feels eerily normal uh, you know i haven't seen my wife in three and a half months so tonight we went out to a restaurant uh just the two of us our first date night in quite a long time and the restaurant was packed and there was a line of people waiting to get in for their reservations and conversations were abuzz and you really wouldn't know and I can't decide if this is a good thing that this country is so resilient that we can move forward, uh, or if it, is it a bad thing? Are we beginning to forget? Is it becoming less salient for us that we're able to go on with our normal lives while the hostages are still there? And uh, you know, I mentioned this to my wife over dinner, not wanting to ruin our date, but I had to bring it up. And, and she said that there are people who don't go out. There are people who are not comfortable still celebrating in any way. They don't go to restaurants. They don't go to movies. They are still in this sort of 
living a life of, uh, of Shiva-type mourning. And we're not just talking about bereaved families, but ordinary citizens who just feel it's inappropriate to uh, be going out. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what you think. You can always email me. I'd, I'd love to hear what, what you have to say. But it's, it's both a testament to how resilient the people are, but also it does bother me. It does bother me that we're all able to go on and that I myself am, am able to go out to a restaurant while this is happening. And I have to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Am I being too ignorant? Am I not being, uh, am I not attached enough to the reality of the circumstances here? But I think that's my big takeaway is just how, how normal life feels. And I don't think I was ready for that. When I was away, I would always ask my kids, but what's the mood as you go around town? What's the vibe? And they would say, it feels normal. But I was sure, I was sure that you could feel it as you walked around. But so far, you know, it's only been 36 hours, but uh, so far you don't. It, it does feel uh, normal. And Ra'anana, which had a terrorist attack exactly one week ago, and, you know, I drove past the bus stop where, one of the bus stops where this happened. And there were people at that bus stop waiting for the bus today. And you would, you see no physical signs of anything having happened and no emotional signs uh, either. You know, my own kid walked home from school today and I, I'm, I'm shocked I allowed him to, but he did. And kids all over the town are walking home from school. Ra'anananans really feel that the incident last week uh, was an anomaly. It was these two brothers working illegally at a car wash who stole the car of a customer, drove it around town, driving it into bus stops, uh, driving it into people. But most most everyone I know sees this as a one-off event and not something that is re necessarily repeatable or that we should expect again. And uh, I don't know if that's completely delusional or completely sane, but it is part of that contradiction that goes to living uh, goes with living in Israel. I did have one really interesting conversation this week that I want to share with you. You know, as I've told you before, my wife, Dorit, is heavily involved in doing volunteer work. And, you know, I have my Zoom background blurred, so you can't see everything going on behind me. But uh, you have uh, duffel bags, and I'm looking at duffel bags full of everything from flashlights to gun oil to winter coats, winter hats, and gloves. Uh, our, our house is... Our apartment is filled with equipment for soldiers, and every day volunteers come by to pack stuff and drive things to bases around the country. And we had a soldier come by last night who's actually a friend of my twins from high school. He's uh, just about their age, so 21 years old. He was supposed to get out of the Army three weeks ago, but he was notified you're actually staying in the Army, and he's been in Gaza since October 7th. He's in a very elite unit. In Hebrew, it's called Sayeret. San Hanim, which is the paratroopers reconnaissance unit. To be a paratrooper is already very difficult and a huge honor. And he's in the elite forces of the paratroopers. So he's, uh, as we say in Hebrew, a kli. Uh, it means a tool. And in English, if you call someone a tool, it's an insult. But in Hebrew, when you call someone a kli, a tool, it means, you know, he's got all the tools. He's, a, he's a amazing. He's a, Hebrew, a hero. And he came over last night with his mother. And I had a chance to talk with them for a few minutes. They were there to pick up some equipment for their unit. Uh, and it was very minor equipment. It was a few cooking stoves uh, that they could take back with them to Gaza. He's home for four days. What he'll do is he'll go for a month and then come home for four days, stay at home, get some rest and relaxation, and then head back. And I was able to talk to him a bit. I, I asked a few questions. First of all, I asked him, you know, logistically, what's your day like? Where do you sleep? I was really curious. Where are they sleeping in Gaza? 
And he told me that they sleep in the houses of Gazans. And I said, do you have beds? And he said, no, the way it works in their houses, it's that only the parents sleep in a bed and the children typically sleep on the floor, on a rug or a mattress. And so they're sleeping, you know, two people, one person in the bed of the parents and the rest of them on the floor on either the mattresses that they have there, which he said is gross. It's kind of Magil, he said, to sleep on their mattresses, but we do it anyway. Uh, and we bring our and they have their own sleeping bags. So just logistically, I was really curious, like where they're sleeping and and for this unit exactly. I'm not sure it's true for everyone, but they are sleeping in the houses of of Gazans there in their sleeping bags. And in his case, his uh, sleeping bag uh, had been soaking wet, so we gave him a new sleeping bag that someone had, had donated, and, and he was overjoyed. And I I actually posted a video of this on my Instagram page and Facebook, and uh, I think it's up there now. If you want to get a look at him, uh, I thank him and and I also thank his mom, but I talked to him, his mom as well. And I said, you know, I didn't want to take, get too personal and take up too much of their time, but I asked her, are you sleeping? And she said, no. And I said, are you, tell me the truth. Are you sleeping at all? And she said, I'm not sleeping at all. My eyes might close for a few minutes here and there during the night. And then she elaborated. She said, not only am I not sleeping, but I have constant fears of hearing a knock on the door. Uh, and every Israeli knows what you mean when you say the knock on the door. It's the, the, it's the sound that every Israeli parent dreads, the doorbell ringing or the knock on the door in the middle of the night, uh, although not necessarily the middle of the night, but I guess in the worst of nightmares, it's the middle of the night, uh, and opening the door and seeing an officer from the Israeli army standing there to deliver you know, the horrible news. And she told us that uh, their neighbor, uh, in their apartment building, got a new laundry machine and uh, and a new dryer. And uh, a couple nights ago, they installed this new dryer. And as the dryer was drying the clothes, it would make a clicking sound. And all night, she thought it was a knock on the door. Uh, she kept waking up from her what minimal sleep she was feeling, being sort of delusionally thinking that this was a knock on the door. And uh, this is how Israeli parents live. And she seemed fully functional when she was over here, but she told me she's not sleeping and that uh, for as long as he's in Gaza, she probably won't. Um, but that's, you know, a little bit of a peek into what the soldiers are going through and what the what the psychology of, of the people are, specifically the, the mothers. So how do I feel about all this? You know, what I'm seeing I first, I personally feel um, that the country is very conflicted right now. I, I feel that we're in this gray area where we're no, like I said, we're no longer as certain that the military option is the best one. We're feeling that we need to free the hostages. We also know that it's untenable to have Hamas armed and living next to us. And so I think a lot of us are, are very confused. And uh, I want to give you a few more poll numbers that sort of uh, back, back this up and show you what Israelis are thinking. Uh, these polls come from the Institute for Israeli Democracy. And uh, I actually happened to interview one of the, uh, the, the professors there in, in my book, Israel 201. And he's a part of all of these surveys. And so I'll just give you some of the numbers. Um, more than 50%, just over, 50% of Israelis, I believe it's 53% of Israelis, disapprove of how the war cabinet has been handling the war. And I'm certain that in the first month, these numbers would have been higher. You would have seen more Israelis approving of how the war cabinet is handling the war. 
But right now, 53% of Israelis disapprove of how the war cabinet is handling the war. And I think what we're talking about is not necessarily the IDF's operations, but more the bickering among those in the war cabinet. The fact that Netanyahu is not allowing Yoav Gallant to meet with the Mossad and the Shin Bet, uh, the fact that you have uh, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, these right-wing extremists, uh, in, a, in a way holding Netanyahu hostage with their demands. And I think that's uh, also the mistrust and not really knowing what to believe uh, when some of our leaders speak, specifically Netanyahu, I think that's what the 53% disapproval is alluding to. 50 per, just over 50% of Israelis believe that we need to investigate what led to October 7th right now and not wait until the war is finished or the hostages come home, that right now it is time to investigate both the army and the government to see how this happened. Now, at the same time, more than 50% of Israelis believe that it's a bad idea to exchange all Palestinian prisoners for the Israeli hostages. So at the same time that we're saying we disapprove of the war cabinet, we're also saying that we do not approve of a prisoner exchange in which we would release all Palestinian prisoners for the Israeli hostages. I think the one number that jumps out to me, well, there's two numbers. One is at 80%, more than 80%, believe that the Israeli public is handling the war well and that we are acting the way we should, volunteering as we should, and keeping our wits about us as we should. So that's that's very telling that we still have this unity in Israeli society and that we believe at least the civilian population is that we are conducting ourselves the way we should. And like I, I think I mentioned this before, but I'll say it again, uh, more than 50% of Israelis would back a U.S. plan that would see the freeing of the hostages, normalizations of Saudi Arabia, and some sort of Palestinian state. So, um, you know, more and more we're beginning to think of this day after, even if our leaders uh, are not. I want to quickly, before I get to your questions, go over some of the other news that's worth mentioning, and I'll do it very quickly. Uh, Anthony Blinken uh, made a statement saying that Israel does need to defend itself. But at the same time, we need to do a better job protecting hospitals in Gaza. And uh, personally, I think this is absolute BS. Uh, it's completely obvious by now that Hamas is using hospitals as a base of operations. And to call Israel out like this and to say that we need to do a better job of protecting hospitals, uh, it's a stab in the back. Uh, it's, it's obvious that these hospitals have been turned into uh, Hamas military bases. And uh, to call Israel out, uh, I really see that as a betrayal. I mentioned the day after the importance, I mentioned the buffer zone that we are now creating this one kilometer buffer zone. That is a big piece of news in Israel that uh, almost all Israelis believe in now. Of course, there are those in the international community who saying that if it displaces Gazans and takes Gazan territory, this is uh, a war crime. And uh, look, we're talking about the safety of Israel. And I think a uh, one kilometer buffer zone is uh, the minimum we can do to protect Israelis. The other big piece of news is that there are apparently still talks going on right now for freeing the hostages. I must tell you, as someone who lives here, uh, we don't know what to believe. On the one hand, we hear in the media that the Mossad is in Qatar talking with Egypt and Qatar, who's representing Hamas, and the U.S. is there talking about some sort of a hostage deal, and that Israel has put forward proposals. One proposal would see a two-month ceasefire uh, in exchange for all the hostages and some 
Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails with the leaders of Hamas being exiled to Qatar. There's also talks that Israel has proposed a three-month ceasefire um, in exchange for all the hostages and the freeing of a number of Palestinian prisoners that we're talking about in the high hundreds or thousands. At the same time, Israeli government officials are denying that we've made any proposals at all and are saying that there are no hostage talks that are meaningful or are going anywhere. So we really, we are confused. I don't know what to tell you. We don't know what to believe. I would imagine that both are true. I would have imagined that there are actually talks going on right now in Qatar with the US and Israel and Egypt, but at the same time that our leaders are, at least those on the, in the war cabinet, are Netanyahu and Yoav Gallant, are pushing very hard to have the war continue. Um, you know, Hamas has said over and over that they really are not going to agree to anything unless Israel completely withdraws from Gaza and they don't want a ceasefire. They want an end to the war completely. If you believe that that is true, then it really does mean that there is no solution except a military solution. Uh, but I, I personally don't know. I don't know what is true and what's not. I'm open to surprises. I've believed for a long time, and I've said this before, that I think it'll be a while before we actually see a hostage deal, um, if we ever do. But uh, we're hearing both pieces of news, that there are talks and that they don't exist. So on that one, I can't really give you clarity. I'm sorry. I do want to get to your questions. You have some amazing questions, and uh, I'm going to start with the ones that you emailed in. And this is a great question that I can relate to personally. Leslie from California says, Leslie from California asks, in previous podcast episodes, you've mentioned that soldiers need all sorts of equipment, everything from sleeping bags and bulletproof vests to mattresses and winter clothing. She says it would seem logical that the military would provide this. Why do Israeli volunteers and us overseas need to help provide and fund these military necessities? Well, first of all, Leslie, that's a great question. And I must say, a lot of Israelis are asking the same question. Why is it that we need to provide these things? Where is the Israeli military? Don't they have the equipment? The answer that I know, I've heard a few answers. One answer is simply that so many soldiers were called up to reserve duty so quickly that we didn't have enough equipment for all of them. That usually reserve 2D is something that you rotate into and rotate out of, and that we didn't have enough equipment for the massive number of reservists that we drafted. And I want to remember, or I want to remind you that we had 150% volunteer rate for reserve duty. So Israel drafted however many hundred thousand, and not only did they all show up, but another 50% of that number also showed up. So we had so many reservists showing up that I think we simply faced a shortage of equipment. The sad truth is a lot of our equipment is out of date, and I can speak to this personally. Back when I was in the IDF, uh, I was issued equipment that was torn, that was not top quality, it certainly wasn't new. I'm talking about the combat vests that you wear, the flak jackets, um, winter clothing that had holes in it. Uh, a lot of it is simply a budget issue uh, that the bud, the military expenditure is already so high that we simply don't have the expenditure to keep buying new equipment for everyone. 
But the bottom line is, it's true. We really do need to provide equipment. And I think this also belongs in the category of act now, ask questions later. So a lot of Israelis are simultaneously packing up bags of equipment and asking themselves, shouldn't the army be doing this? Why am I doing it? And I say this to you as someone who right now is looking out at a plastic Ziploc bag filled with gun oil and uh, socks and, and other military equipment in my house that we are ready to ship down to bases in the south and up north. So it's a great question. I don't have a perfect answer for you, but I think it has to do with shortages, uh, just the economic cost. And again, you know, that failure of imagination to even think that we would need this many soldiers at once. The same reason that October 7th was allowed to happen, even though we had the intelligence, could be the reason that we never thought we would have to call up this many soldiers uh, at once. Certainly no one was expecting that we'd have hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Gaza um, this fall. On October 6th, no one would have thought that. Donna asks, here's another really good question. Donna asks, if we have not... If we had not been in Gaza, oh, sorry. If we've been in, oh, sorry, okay. Donna asked, if we had not been in Gaza since 2005, why do we care if they want to have their own state? Why would it bother us if Gaza and the Palestinians become a state of their own? Is there any reason not to support this? Is this just Netanyahu or is there a consensus among Israelis that there shouldn't be a state in Gaza? And there are different answers to this one. Let's be clear. There are certainly elements of the Israeli population, a very right-wing element, who already are planning to live in Gaza. They are dreaming of what it will be like when Israel enters Gaza again and occupies it and takes it over and has residents living in Gaza the same way we were in 2004. There is definitely a segment of the population, including Smotrich and Ben Gvir, those right-wingers in Netanyahu's government, who want us back in Gaza, who want Gaza to be part of Israel, who don't want a state for the Palestinians there. And they see it as Israeli territory that we are, and they, they believe that we are going to be living there soon. Now, most Israelis do not want this, but for various reasons. Uh, I you know, for my own personal reasons, I don't think Israeli soldiers should be putting their lives on the line to guard a few hundred Israeli residents in Gaza amongst two million uh, Gazans. Uh, it's also, you know, the more the more we break up that territory, the more I think the bigger a threat it actually becomes to us, the same way it's happening in the West Bank. But what do most Israelis think? I think most Israelis would be perfectly fine with the Palestinians having a state in Gaza if it were demilitarized and if they were not a military threat. The main reason we wouldn't want a state there is because it's an, it would necessarily be an enemy state who would attack us, and they've said they will attack us again and again as long as they can uh, after October 7th. And so that would be the reason not to have a state there. But I think most Israelis, if they knew with 100% certainty that it would be safe and that we would not be threatened, we have no interest in being back in Gaza. Um, so I think that it really is a security issue. Uh, that goes for the West Bank as well. I think more and more Israelis are waking up to the idea that the settlers that we do have in the West Bank are actually posing a big threat to us by their being there. And that we need, as I've said before, statehood for the Palestinians, not because we necessarily love them or think it's fair, but for our own security, we need separation. And uh, that that is why 
over 50% of Israelis back some sort of deal that would see statehood for the Palestinians, a two-state solution, simply that we could have separation and not have our population intermingled with theirs. Now, Netanyahu, on a personal level, his stance has always been no state for the Palestinians, no two-state solution. And that even meant that he would undercut the Palestinian Authority by funding Hamas. You know, one thing we're learning is just how much Netanyahu and his government have propped up Hamas and have been giving them money and uh, really building them up as a way to counter the Palestinian Authority and make the Palestinian Authority weak to hurt the chances of any sort of state in the West Bank. Uh, but more and more Israelis now would be in favor of some sort of statehood if it meant that Israel could be safer. Karen asked, what are the facts and truth regarding how much we've actually dismantled Hamas. And she asked this, she says, because she's heard conflicting interviews. She's heard IDF <clears throat> officers saying that we have dismantled Hamas uh, in a very significant way. And she's heard other interviews, uh, specifically something in the New York Times that I alluded to before, where officers have said that we've, we've actually only dismantled and killed 10 to 20% of Hamas's military uh, population. And I think, so you're asking, what are the facts and truth? Well, it does seem that, you know, the goal of dismantling Hamas completely is becoming uh, ever more distant as an actual achievable goal. Um, the numbers I heard, is even reported here in Israel and media, is that we've killed at most about 20% of Hamas's you know, 30,000, 20 to 30,000 militants. Uh, and the fact that they're dressed as civilians and hiding out in tunnels makes it very hard to dismantle all of them. So I think Israelis are starting to realize that this idea of us completely defeating and dismantling Hamas um, might just be uh, a delusion, another, another power of imagination that we might have been counting on. Now, at the same time, we don't need to kill every single single Hamas militant in order to be victorious over them. If we can build a buffer zone, if we can demilitarize them enough and destroy enough of their rocket launchers, destroy enough of the tunnel network, and have some sort of government, maybe an international force combined with some Israeli security and uh, Arab technocrats guarding, you know, ruling over Gaza, that could be a victory, even though it's not the type of complete dismantling of Hamas victory that. Uh, we originally sought out. But in terms of the facts and truth, it does seem that uh, right now only 20% of Hamas uh, militants have been killed, and it, it will be very hard to to kill them all. So I got a, one comment from a reader, and I'll change his name, a viewer. I'll change his name because I don't want to call him out, but uh, let's just say his name is Ron. And Ron said to me, you know, I enjoy these broadcasts and podcasts, but I do think that you should tone down your criticism of Netanyahu because, and he reminded me that we've had two temples destroyed in Jewish history because of sinat chinam, which means hatred amongst ourselves, hatred for one another, and that disunity among the Jewish people is what actually is the most destructive force of all toward Israel and toward the Jewish people. And so, in that sense, he urged me to hold my criticism of Netanyahu, in his words, closer to the vest and not to be so adamant about it. Look, I, I appreciate that. I, I understand the idea of not airing dirty laundry in public. Um, at the same time, I see this as a very unique community of people who 
really care about the fate and future of Israel and who want my opinion, the honest one of how I see things, and you don't necessarily have to agree with it, but what I do want to promise you is that you'll always get my honest take on the situation. And number two, I I firmly believe that we need to criticize our leaders where that criticism is due. And, you know, if 90% if of the population supported Netanyahu, but I didn't, then you might see me as some, you know, radical with an agenda. But the fact is, you know, 80% of the Israeli population right now does not trust Netanyahu, does not believe him when he speaks, and does not know what to believe when he tells us things about the war. Um, we are eager for some sort of new leadership, and we're also really, really suspicious of his motivations. And I think this is important to know. This is important to call out when our sons are, and daughters, they're sending women into Gaza now too, when our sons and daughters are going into Gaza, we need to know that the leader is doing it for the sake of Israeli security and nothing else. Not to stay in power, not to avoid going to trial, no other personal motivations. And many, many Israelis are unhappy with Netanyahu's leadership. Yes, myself included, but I'm speaking not on behalf of myself. I'm really speaking on, on behalf of the public and those I talk to. And uh, I think that will make Israel ultimately stronger. So I see your point of Sinat Chinam and not criticizing for the sake of criticism. But there's really, if we want a strong Israel and we want our sons and daughters to be safe in Gaza and we want the hostages to come home on the right terms, we need to believe in our leadership and in our leadership that tells the truth. And I hope I don't lose you, Ron, as a participant and subscriber, but I am going to continue speaking um, the way I speak. And again, this is a great place for you guys to <laughs> chime in and email me uh, what your thoughts are on it. Um, certainly when I started this 15 weeks ago, my intention was just to bring you sort of the facts from the uh, Israeli side, and it's becoming more opinionated as time goes on. But that's also what's making it more meaningful uh, for me. Here's a great question from Naomi. Naomi said, I heard that Gans and others are opposed to the recent budget because it didn't call out the right wing for their activities. Can you explain what is meant by that? Yes. So in the recent budgets that were proposed and a budget was passed, but in a lot of these budget discussions, uh, one of the big criticisms from Gans and others was that m funding was cut from many ministries, the education ministry, the ministry of health. Apparently they're closing the ministry of diaspora affairs, which I think should be worrisome to those of us who have roots in the diaspora and live outside of Israel. But what they are not defunding are some of these right-wing uh, policies, um, programs, uh, like building, expanding our building in the West Bank. Uh, still, we are not cracking down on Jewish settlers in the West Bank who are being violent against Palestinians. Uh, this is what the argument is about with the budget, that we are still continuing to fund right-wing projects most of them in the West Bank, but we are meanwhile defunding all these other ministries that are really vital to the health of the state of Israel, all so that we can help fund this war effort and the recovery effort. And uh, we, you know, the belief is that Netanyahu is not cutting funding because uh, he needs these right-wing uh, extremists in his coalition in order to stay in power. So that's why Gans and others were opposed to the budget. They think if things should be cut, they should be cut everywhere and that pet projects should still not receive funding while everyone else is being cut. 
Charles asks, what does the average man or woman on the street think about the concept of the day after? And I talked about this before, and I think if you'd asked this question a month ago, the answer would have been different. But more and more, like I said, Israelis are starting to come around to the idea that maybe a two-state solution is the necessary step. But again, this is only, what, 51, 52, 53% of Israelis? That means there's 47% that are not agreeing uh, with this. You don't hear a lot of certainty when it comes to the day after. You know, you hear some say that we should strengthen the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and put them in charge. You should say that we should never trust them again. Uh, we hear that the U.S. should be involved, that Israel should be the only ones responsible for security. Uh, I haven't heard really uh, any average, you know, Yossi Tali on the street putting forth any incredible ideas that uh, I haven't heard anyone else uh, I think what we do agree is that our leaders need to be talking about the day after. And so far, uh, the, I will say this, the one thing, I've only been back in Israel for um, for 36 hours, but the one thing that I have heard from a lot of people is that the government isn't doing its job and that thank God for the civilians. Thank God the citizens of Israel are bringing the country forward because the government we can't count on. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't trust the army. People's faith in the army is very high. But the more bickering we see amongst the government, the more statements we're hearing where it seems like uh, our representatives are speaking out of both sides of their mouths, dancing at two weddings, as they say, and don't know who to trust. Um, more and more Israelis are thankful that the civilian population is taking the country forward and that it is um, it, because the government, there is a feeling that the government is letting us down. And I'm hearing this from right-wing people uh, as well. Before I finish uh, today's broadcast, I want to share some news with you, which probably a lot of you have heard if you are in my newsletter, but it is sort of a big week for me. Uh, this week, I was notified that my book, Israel 201, which I co-wrote with Benji Lovett, received the National Jewish Book Award for 2023 in the category of Jewish identity and education, which is really an amazing category, especially with everything going on in Israel right now, that the committee felt that for a look at Israel that's really meaningful and deep, that Israel 201 is the best way to do it. So Benji and I are, are humbled, we are honored, and um, we hope all of you, if you haven't read it yet, will at some point. Uh, but thank you so much for the encouragement. Uh, your support as an audience means the world to me, and I, uh, I look forward to coming to you every week and sharing my insights on Israel with you. Todaraba, thank you for joining me. I'm going to go try to get some sleep. I'm amazed I pulled this off at 3 and 4 a.m., but uh, it's for you, and I love spending this time with you every week. Laila Tov, everybody, signing off from Israel. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions, Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>